that song has kind of become an anthem of our theme, Living Hope, because of the Easter season. I hope and trust that you have found the living hope because of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I like that song because we're kind of building up toward next Sunday where we will come back and gather once again and we will talk about and celebrate on that day as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this has been a theme for, as an anthem of hope. Um, in, In Psalm chapter 40, it says this about music and about a hymn and about a song. It says this, He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. That's ultimately why we sing. We want to reflect on who the Lord is and what he's done. And the lyrics to this song are absolutely powerful in the work of Christ and what he has done for us. Let me read the second verse once again. Hear about the work of the Lord and what he has done for you and I. Who could imagine so great a mercy? Have you experienced the mercy of the Lord? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to where my sin and bear my shame. You realize that's what he did? He came to this earth to take upon your sin, to set us free from this prison cell that we are held. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. I'm a child of God. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah. Praise the one who has what? If you're a child of God, you've been set free. You can walk out of that prison. Of all of those things that bind and hold your life. That's what the song talks about. It talks about these chains that are a part of our lives. These chains that hold us in bondage. It it could be something simple like this or something else that you're experiencing in life. But we are bound, we are held by these things called chains. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Barabbas last week was in a prison. He was in a physical prison because of the crimes that he had committed against humanity. And God in his grace made a great exchange. He let the prisoner Barabbas go free and he put Jesus in there as a prisoner so that he could go to the cross and offer himself as a sacrifice for my sin and your sin so that we can ultimately set free of all of those things. Have you ever thought about your life as a prison cell? There's a psychologist and his name is William Barry. And, and the name of the article that he uh, wrote is called Imprisoned by Your Life. And, and notice what he writes about our lives and how we can be imprisoned by a lot of different things. He says this, Many people feel trapped by aspects of their life. Prison. Trapped in an unhappy relationship, at an unfulfilling job, or generally unhappy with their life despite their basic needs being met. Maybe, maybe there's something down inside of us that just says we feel trapped and we can't get out. He goes on to say, the quest for the American dream has left them wanting and more so. They are tied to ideas and they are not providing happiness. If that is the case, if we are trapped by all of these kinds of different things, the quest for the American dream, and maybe some of these things over here, what is the answer to that? Well, The Bible gives us the answer. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 146 these words, he, speaking God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. 
The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. And if you look at that text, in light of Jesus, in light of the incarnation, in light of Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem and being hailed as the Messiah, we see that that's what Jesus has done. He has come to ultimately set us free from all of the bondage in our life. All of the secret sins, all of the little things in our life to give us that living hope that we can go in day in and day out, that we may not understand all the different things going on in our life, but we ultimately can find living hope in the unique person of Jesus because he sets us free. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. We're going to look at five simple verses this morning. And basically where we're at in the Gospel of Mark is we're, we're kind of looking at the final day, the final week of the life of Jesus up to this point. Jesus has been arrested. He'd been, been betrayed by Judas. He'd been taken before the temple guards and then taken before Ananias and Caiaphas. And he basically had this, this mocked up trial before the religious leaders. At that particular point in time, he's denied by Peter and Jesus is left all alone. And it's almost like, though he's not in a physical prison, though some people may believe that when he was uh, in between Ananias and Caiaphas and on his way to Pilate, there was this holding cell, maybe in the high priest's house, where maybe this dungeon he was being held as a prisoner down there, waiting. And then he's paraded before the Roman governor, Pilate. And after a thorough questioning before him, over and over, Pilate can't find anything wrong with him. He says, he's innocent. I find no, nothing wrong with this man. And he's going to lead him away to, to be crucified. Let me just read our texts again. By the way, the dramatic narrative points exactly to the tension that's going on in the life of Pilate, the life of the religious leaders, the life of the people, the tension that's going on. Let me just read the words. Mark chapter 15, verse 16 says this. The soldiers led Jesus away in, into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again. And again they struck him on the head with a staff. And they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put it on his own clothes. Then they led him out to crucify him. Father, I pray that we would simply open our hearts and our minds with open Bibles. Father, we would, we would look to the unique person of Jesus. And these five verses that we would get a picture of who you are. Your identity as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Father, as we enter into this incredible week, this passion week where we stop and hopefully take some time to look at who you are and what you've done and to reflect on her life, how, on our lives, how you have freed us from our prisons. Father, I pray that we would see the wonder and the beauty of Jesus on the cross and we would see and recognize the living hope that we have because of Christ. Father, I ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when you read this text, first of all, there's a couple of things that are very, very disturbing. The first one is this. It's the crown of thorns. When you see what's happening to Jesus, it's almost like he's being led along like, an, like some type of animal. They come in, they strip him of his clothes, and they weave together this crown, and they put something on him, and they jam it on him, and they, they do some other things. They mock him, they spit him, they, beat him, they hit him over the head with, with a staff. So all of these things are, are happening. And, and Jesus is being treated in an incredibly inhumane way. We would never put up with this today. 
And that this is all happening to Jesus. He's being led around like he's of no value at all to other people. And the second thing we realize is this, it's, it's the silence of Jesus. He's an innocent man. He's done no wrong. And he quietly follows what's going on as if there's some kind of plan going on behind the scene. And so what I want to do this morning in these verses is I want to just look at two things. The first one is this. I want to look at defenseless of Jesus. Jesus was defenseless before the people. And the second thing I want to look at is just the, the degradation of Jesus, how Jesus was treated. And then at the end, I want to come back and, and what does Jesus defenselessness? What is the degradation of you? What does that mean for you and I today as we enter into Holy Week? So let's begin in verse 16, the defenselessness of Jesus. It's interesting in verse 16, verse 20, you kind of have this this sandwich again of one key word. And it's this. They let him out. They let him out to beat him. They let him out to flog him. And then they led him out in verse 20 to crucify him. We get this picture of Jesus absolutely being pulled alongside with no control of the people around him. They come in and then they strip him of his clothes. Then they, they take a, 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 a tunic, probably from one of the soldiers, as a robe, and they put it on him. Then they weave together this crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they jam it on his head. They give him a staff and they put it in his hand and then they pull it out and they begin to beat him on the head. Then they begin to mock him and they begin to spit him. And over and over we see in here, he's being treated like some kind of animal. And he just doesn't respond in any way. Jesus is being led about with no rights, defenseless before all the people. And I say this to remind us, what a far cry from Mark chapter 10, verse 33, where Jesus is leading the way. And where was he leading the way to? He's heading into Jerusalem. I need to go to Jerusalem. Something needs to happen in Jerusalem. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be treated in a very, very terrible way. But Jesus is leading the way, and he's leading the way. where He's leading them into Jerusalem, to the cries of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we go into Jerusalem, and then he would stand before the religious leaders. He would give an account for his life. And once again, even there, he was telling the people about the Passover, about this wonderful celebration. And he's leading the way, pulling them alongside. And religious leaders come before him and they begin to question him. And they have this mock trial. Then they send him to Pilate, then back to Herod the Pilate. And Jesus is being dragged along until that final time. When he's standing outside in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. And then Judas comes up. Remember Judas? Judas comes up and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. And the rest starts. And Peter thinks what he's going to do is he's going to take on the whole band and he grabs a sword in his hand and he decides to chop off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. Jesus is being led. All of these people are going after him. He's being arrested. He's being treated horribly. Peter whacks off the high servant's ear and listen to Jesus' words in response to what Peter has done. Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. Notice what Jesus says to Peter and the people. He says this, Do you not think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus is absolutely in complete control of all that is going on in his life, even to the point of coming into the city of Jerusalem to be arrested and mocked and spit upon. Jesus is absolutely in control, even though he's being led along and he doesn't say anything. You can go back to Luke chapter 4, 
When, when Jesus begins his public ministry, remember, the Spirit of God comes upon him and anoints him in a mighty and powerful way. And, and when the Spirit of God comes alongside of him, he goes out and what he does, he heals people. Because he's been anointed by the Spirit of God to bring the power of God to people. He casts out demons and he goes out in the power of God to realize that the spiritual blindness and things that have been wrapping up people in the presence of Jesus, he frees them of all of those things. In the anointing of Jesus, the Spirit of God has come in the might and power because of who he is and what he's done. And he's demonstrated in so many incredible ways through who he is and what he's done in his identity. And all of that, all of that power was on display before all of the people. And Jesus is arrested and he comes before the people and he doesn't say anything. And all of that is in line with what the prophet Isaiah said about the Messiah, about the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7. Notice what it says about the Messiah and notice how that text fits in with line with Jesus and where he is with the arrest before Pilate, before Herod, before all of these things. Isaiah chapter 53 says this, speaking of the Messiah, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Though that all of this stuff is being pressed upon Jesus, that's being led about like a common animal. All of that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53 that this is what would happen to the suffering servant. And Jesus comes along the side and he doesn't say a word. Jesus is absolutely in complete control of all that's going on in his life, even to the point of going to the cross and offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He's defenseless. But all of that is in line with who he is and his role as a Messiah and what he would do to come and offer himself as a sacrifice, as a payment for our sin. So we see the defenselessness of Jesus. And it gets worse. It gets absolutely worse. Verses 17 to 20, we see the degradation of Jesus. We see how Jesus is absolutely radically treated in a horrible, horrible manner. We know from Luke chapter 23, verse 11, that during the questioning of Herod, he'd already been mocked. They put a robe on him, and he'd already been mocked. So he'd gone to Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod. Herod mocked him. Herod sent him back to Pilate. And all of this mocking has been going on. He's already been mocked. And now we know that uh, Pilate has had him beaten. He's had him flogged. You know what it's like for a person to be flogged at this particular point in time by a Roman soldier? A lot of times what they would do, they would simply take the perpetrator and they would make him lie down. They would stretch him out. Maybe stretch out his arms and his legs to make the, uh, his body taut. And then they would, they would take the whip with a handle and uh, all, all these leather straps were there and there would be maybe metal in there or maybe bone in there or glass in there. And then they would lay you out and they would flail you on the back. They would whip you over and over again until your, your skin and the back was just basically laid open raw. And, and they're doing that to Jesus. They're flogging him and beating him in a merciless way. And I think what Pilate's trying to do is Pilate trying to, in the, the mocking and the beating, he's trying to draw up sympathy for, for Jesus. He knows he's innocent. So maybe what he's going to do is, listen, I'm going to have him beaten. I'm going to have him be beaten in such a way that when I bring him out in, in John chapter 90, behold the man when I bring him out. What they're going to do is they're going to see how badly he's been beaten. They're going to have sympathy for him. And what they're going to do is they're going to call it, let Jesus be arrested. It's almost like Pilate's last time to try and free Jesus from the people. It doesn't happen. As bad as it is, it's not happened. 
He's absolutely beaten. And his back is, is flailed and laid open for all to see. And know what the soldiers do? Because Jesus has hailed himself as the king of the Jews, they have a mock coronation just for sport. We're talking about the king of kings and the Lord of lords, God in the flesh, being treated and mocked in an incredibly horrible way. Remember, these are Roman soldiers. They're tough soldiers. They're used to death. They're used to fighting. They're used to gladiators. They're used to all of this. They're used to inflicting pain and suffering. And what they simply do here is they come together, they band together for a mock coronation. Jesus has proclaimed himself to be the king of the Jews. Guess what? We will make him the king of the Jews. So they pull him aside, and maybe one of the soldiers takes off his, his tunic, his coat, and he puts it on Jesus. And that's going to be the mock robe, if you will. And somebody gets a big, a great idea. One of the soldiers goes out, maybe goes outside, and he, he finds a bush with some really big thorns on it. And he begins to weave together this, this crown of thorns, if you will, and puts it together. And he comes in, and he puts it on Jesus' head, if you will. Remember, he's already been stripped of all of his clothes, laid make, naked before all these people. So they put the, 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 the crown upon him, and what does a, a king need? A king needs a, a scepter. So they give him a stick, and they take the stick back from him. And then they get, to, they get to beat him on the head with it. And then somebody gets in his face and, and spits in his face. Anybody ever spit in your face? Man, when I was growing up, my mom would never allow us to spit at each other because that was such an act of degradation. And they ridicule him and they laugh at him. And in one of the texts it says this, they came up to him and they slapped him in the face. Why? Because they're having this mock coronation of the king of kings. They believe him to be a king because he says he is a king. You ever wonder why they do this? You ever wonder why? They're not used to... Roman soldiers are not used to mocking people like this. They're not used to carrying out like this. Do you, you ever wonder why they did this? I think one of the keys in verse 18, it says this, Hail, King of the Jews. They were used to giving tribute to Caesar, to the emperor. They were used to bowing the knee to Caesar. They knew that. That was their king. That was their emperor. But here Jesus has called himself the King of the Jews. And so you know what they're doing? Jesus is just a joke. That's all he is to them. He is just a joke. Despite all that Jesus has done in Galilee, all that he has done for people, all that he has done to help, he is just seen as a joke, and he's mocked upon him. It's very, very unusual for Roman soldiers to treat a person like this, and yet they're doing this. And I think there's something else that we see here. It's this. The unusual treatment of the Roman soldiers to Jesus because hatred runs deep. Listen, hatred runs deep in the heart of another person. And the hatred that the Jewish people and the Romans had for each other was incredibly, incredibly deep. And they hated each other. And the Roman soldiers, they hated the Jewish people. And they hated this guy by the name of Jesus. Why? Because he is setting himself up to be a rival king. He's setting himself not only to be a rival king, but a king of the Jews. Are you kidding me? A king of the religious Jewish people? They hated the Jewish people. And I think what we're seeing here is Jesus has been treated in an incredibly horrible way because they're mocking him and they hate him for who he is and what he's done. So what we see in these verses is we see the defenseless Jesus 
being radically treated in a way that is just makes us sick to our stomach. He's being degraded in, so, in such a way that we can't think or imagine that our, our king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, would be actually treated this way. And that's what we see in these five verses, through Pilate, through the people. And Jesus just stands, and he's silent. So what do we learn? What do we learn from being Jesus being treated this way? I'd like to point out a couple of things. Because there's theology here. This is about the identity of Jesus. This is about the plan of God. This is about the person of the Messiah. There's a lot of theology here. And I want to let you hear these things so that when we leave here today, we can recognize that Jesus, as our living hope, offers us a couple of things. Number one is this. Out of the defenselessness of Jesus, we recognize, number one, Jesus can be trusted. Have you trusted Jesus with your life? Have you trusted Jesus with your life? What the defenselessness of Jesus means is, is that we can trust him for who he is and what he's done. How so? Recall the words of Jesus. Recall what he said when he's with Peter. And, and Peter's whacked off the ear of Malchus. Recall what he said. He's walking in obedience to Jesus, and he's, or to God, and he's walking in obedience to the scripture. Matthew chapter 26, verse 54, it says this. But then how will the scriptures be fulfilled that say that it must happen this way? Jesus knows what the scriptures say, and he's following the scriptures. He's simply walking along, knowing that this is God's plan for his life, and he's walking in obedience to God's salvation plan. So he's defenseless before him. He doesn't need to speak. Isaiah chapter 53. He realizes that what I'm going to do is I'm going to fulfill and walk in obedience to God's ultimate plan that I would go and offer myself as a sacrifice for sin. See, we can trust Jesus and his words because he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And he's come to set us free from the prison cells that we are entrapped in. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Notice what Jesus said, Paul writing these words. Notice what he says. He says about Jesus, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by what? By becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Jesus' death on the cross was for my sin. It was for your sin. It's a great substitution. So Jesus obediently goes, and he's allowed to be mocked. He's allowed to be spit on. He's allowed to be scourged. He's allowed to have all of these things happen to him because ultimately the scriptures are being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53. Let me read Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. Verse 3, I'm sorry. Notice what the prophet Isaiah said about the suffering servant and the role that he would play. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, unfamiliar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. That's exactly what's happening to Jesus as he stands before Pilate, as he stands before Peter. Before the, before the people, as he's mocked, as he's spit upon, as all of these horrible things happen, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3 is fulfilled. Go back and read Isaiah chapter 3. Go back and read the entire chapter. It's about the role of the suffering servant. It's about the role the Messiah would come and what he would play and how we would go to the cross and he would bear all of our sin, the weight of all of our sin. He would remove all of those things from us by simply going to the cross for us. Jesus' words can be trusted all of the words of jesus can be trusted and we can trust him for who he is and what he's done for us i think the second implication from this text is this 
Jesus provides vindication. Jesus provides vindication. The vindication from Jesus would come as a result of the resurrection. Mark chapter 10, verse 33. Remember, he had told them, Mark chapter 8, he had told them, his disciples, on Mark chapter 10, verse 33, he told them what was going to happen to them. Over and over, he said, this is what's going to happen. Mark chapter 10, verse 33 says this again. He took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. He told them in advance, everything that's going to happen. We're going up to Jerusalem. I'm leading the way into Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. That's exactly what has happened to him. They will condemn him to death. That's exactly what will happen to him. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's exactly what will happen to him. Verse 34, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. And three days later, guess what? He was raised from the dead. And because of the resurrection, the, the life of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the scripture of Isaiah chapter 53, find their vindication in God's plan for salvation for fallen humanity. Jesus' life is vindicated by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he said, all of that's going to happen. And I'm going to do that. Why? So that you can feel the freedom of being released on the inside of your sin and your shame. And all of these things that bring fear into your life. Paul would write to his young friend Timothy these words about a summary of the life of Jesus. Notice he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up into glory. What does Paul do? Paul gives us a summary of the life of Jesus, if you will. He appeared in the flesh. What's that? That's the incarnation. The Son became man. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That's the resurrection. The Spirit of God brought him back to life. He was seen by angels in triumph. They witnessed his life. He was proclaimed upon in the nations. That's the church's gospel message to go forth and talk about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was believed on in the world. That's the successful gospel advance of people. Falling in love with Jesus, embracing Jesus for who he is, recognizing that he can do all of those things, and their lives radically being transformed on the inside as he changes us through the Spirit of God. And finally, he was taken up into glory where he sits right now, seated at the right hand of God. And he's done all of that for you and I. The resurrection of Jesus vindicates his defenselessness. It vindicates the degradation that happened to him because all of that happened for you and I. All of that happened for you and I. I want you to know that the wrath of God is removed from our lives. And one of the things that we have to do in order to understand the wrath of God, we need to go back to the garden. We need to go back to the garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, you remember what he's praying? Not my will, but your will be done. And he's praying, God, would you please remove the cup? He's in the garden of Gethsemane praying with the disciples, remove the cup. What's, what's the cup? It's the cup of God's wrath. You know, we, we don't talk a lot about God's wrath anymore. It's the, God's wrath is something that we're fearful of. But God the Father has a holy disposition against sin. And God's wrath is his 
disposition. It's his disposition against people who would continue to rebel against him. God's wrath is the just and measured response to his holiness toward evil. And that's upon every human being that ever lived. I, because of my rebellion and my sinfulness, have rebelled against God. And and the wrath of God was a part of my life at one particular point in time. I was walking away from him. Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against people who will what? They will suppress the truth in ungodliness. John chapter 3, verse 36 is a description of my life. It's a description of those who are not in Christ. Notice what John chapter 3 says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not free, will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. It means this. I have been free. You have been free from the wrath of God. God's righteous indignation against sin has been poured out on the life of Jesus on the cross, and I've been free. The resurrection vindicates God's sending Jesus to go to the cross and offer himself as a sacrifice for my sin and for your sin. And the wrath of God is removed from my life. I'm a child of God. And God looks at me and he says, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you because of who you are and what you've done in believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. I want you to think about the irony, if you will, the crown of thorns. Remember, they took the crown of thorns and they weaved together a thorn and they jammed it on Jesus' head. Think about this. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, remember the, the curse? Remember the ramifications of the curse? Genesis 3, verse 17 says this. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. The ground was cursed because of Adam's sin. And a part of that curse was the thorns. And now they've woven together this crown. And they've taken it with the thorns and they're cramming it on the head of Jesus. And as the thorns dig into his scalp and the blood begins to flow, we're reminded that the thorns produce the blood. And the blood of Jesus is going to ultimately cleanse us from our sin. The irony, the mockery of the Roman soldiers and calling him a king and putting a crown and a robe on him. All of that one day is going to come to fruition because Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's gone to the cross to remove the wrath of God in our lives, if you will. And it means that we are free from all of these things. Bitterness of life. We are free from the shame that controls our life. We are free from addiction. We are free from dead because of the resurrection of Jesus and him going to the cross for our sin. The wrath of God is removed in our life. And Jesus did this for us. He did this for you. Think about the song that we've been singing. The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, and yours forever, Jesus Christ, my living hope. That song is a reminder of all that Jesus has done for us. There's been a great exchange. There's no doubt that I was in prison because of all of the different things that have happened in my life, the bitterness in my life, the pain and the suffering, all of that. I was in prison. The wrath of God was in my life. But because of Christ and what he's done, bearing the cross, he has set me free. And I step out of that prison. 
and I am absolutely 100% free. If you are free in Jesus, you are absolutely free on the inside to worship him, to obey him, walk in obedience to him for what he's done for you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can do that. And all of that was done for you and for me. Isaiah chapter 53, let me read again. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Peter picks up that verse and finds its fulfillment in the unique person of Jesus and what he's done by going to the cross and offering himself as a sacrifice for his sin. All of that was placed upon Jesus at the cross. And he knew it. And by his wounds, I am absolutely free. And Jesus did it all for us. What is another implication from this text? It's this. The life of Jesus is an example. Even the pain and suffering, it is an example of how we are to live our lives. We are to live our lives on the, under the umbrella of Jesus and what he has done for us. Do you ever wonder how we got this story? How, how do we get this text in here in the Gospel of Mark? Well, we know that Mark was not with Jesus when he saw this, right? We know that. We believe that probably Mark got the information from Peter, but where's Peter? Peter's not in this story. Remember, they, all the disciples, they've ran. They're gone. And this is happening where? In, in the praetorium. They're away from Jesus. You know, Jesus is over here in the praetorium, and the people are over here, and Pilate's kind of going back and forth. So how do we know of what's happening to Jesus? How do we know of these words? Was somebody watching that we don't know of? In Mark chapter 15, verse 39, the end of the gospel, Mark, listen to these words. This is the one of the Roman soldiers that says this. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard this cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. In other words, the manner in which this guy saw the life of Jesus, saw the words of Jesus, saw the pain, saw the suffering, the way that he saw all of it had a transforming impact in his life and said, I believe that this was the son of God. And it's not any different than the two thieves on the cross, remember? Two thieves on the cross. At, at one time, both of them are mocking them. And somehow, in between the mockery, one of them changes his mind and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, something about what they saw in Jesus' suffering transformed their lives. And by the way, we are called to suffer. Peter, the guy who ran, said this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Listen, the Christian life is not easy. You could be mocked. You could be spit upon. You could be treated irreverently. You could lose your job for naming the name of Jesus. That's a reality that you and I have to live with. It's a tension that we have to live with. But Jesus is our example. And when we look to the cross and what Jesus has done, and we look to his life, that becomes our example. And that should transform us. And that should give us hope. That when I'm suffering and when you're suffering, when we are suffering, Jesus suffered for us. By the way, he was innocent. He was absolutely innocent. Last thing and I'm done. Guess what? The story's not over. The story is not over. 
Who's on trial in our text? We're kind of left to put together the pieces. Who's on trial? Well, Herod, you could act like Herod. You could respond like Herod. He wanted to see Jesus, wanted to see a miracle, but he basically mocked him and sent him off. Pilate did the same thing. Pilate did an investigation, found him to be innocent, but because he wanted to side with the people, he wasn't willing to bow the knee and to trust Christ. Pilate's wife suffered and didn't want anything to do with Jesus. There's a crowd of, of people. They're, they're fickle. They don't have any idea what to do. Let me ask you, who do you identify with? The disciples are gone. The Roman soldier said, surely this man is the son of God. And they saw the way that he died. It's, the, the text leaves us the opportunity to respond about the death of Jesus, the mockery of Jesus, the defenselessness of Jesus, the decorative of Jesus, and to think, well, what does that mean for my life? And the bottom line is this. This man who was mocked, this man who was spit upon, who was slapped in the face, he's coming back. He's coming back. And he's coming back as a judge. This is a time of grace. This is a time to bow the knee to Jesus and to trust all that has happened to him was for us. But one day Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to come back as a judge. I'm going to read Revelation 19, and then I'm going to be done. Revelation 19 says this. I saw heaven standing open, and there was before me a white horse whose rider is faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the king that one day is going to return. And he's returning as a judge. How do you want to meet him? Today is the opportunity to meet him as our savior. Because you don't want to meet him as a judge. It's really simple. You look at the claims of Jesus. You look at his life. You look at things that he did. You look at his uh, words. You look that he went to the cross to offer himself as a payment, as a sacrifice for sin. You say, listen, I believe and I trust in that Jesus for who he is. And I want him to remove the, the penalty of sin in my life. And you just reach out and trust him and say, Jesus, I trust you for who you are and you're done. The Bible says the moment you do that, you're cleansed as far as east is from the west. You're cleansed of all your sin. And you are made new. You're transformed not only on the inside, but your heart and mind is transformed. And you are made new. And you are absolutely set free from all of the pain and suffering. Let me pray, and then we're going to take some time to remember Jesus and what he's done for us in communion. Father, I just want to take a moment to be silent and allow people to speak to you in their own hearts. Father, we recognize the pain and the suffering of Jesus. And Lord, when we look at the Bible, we look at the teaching we look at the life of Christ, we know that he did this all for us so that we would be free from our sin. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is our 
atoning sacrifice. We thank you for the freedom that we have to love and to worship. Father, we thank you that we are free from the bondage that holds us captive. In our minds and in our hearts, we are free to worship you, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Father, we just want to take a moment to be quiet and to acknowledge your death on the cross for our sins, that your death was my death, and we thank you for that. Father, we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.